0: Why were all the geriatricians new admits to the nursing home screened with a with a pregnancy test? I I, don't like I this. hope this I don't. is going to be appropriate. It it is because they're going to a nursing home. <laughs> I hate that so much. I don't. You know, Paul. <laughs> I, I, I could have just done an old pun. No, no, nobody. All right, I'm out of practice. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to stop recording. Now.
1: Hey guys, uh, how's it well, going?
0: Well, hi Matt, how you doing? It's hey. been a while.
2: <laughs> Natural as always.
1: Yeah, we. Uh, it turns out we don't know how to start the show. It's been, <laughs> has it been 200 shows yet, Paul? It feels like 200 and I still it don't know like how to doing. start the show. <laughs> uh, tonight we talk about multi-morbidity. We will define that up front, but essentially it means older adults with lots of complexity or, or usually they're older adults with lots of complexity, but Paul... Why don't you tell them? why don't you tell the audience what we do on this show and before we introduce our wonderful guest host tonight?
2: Happy to, as always. We are, as you know, the internal medicine podcast, and we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Um, and as always, we spend a little bit of time up front getting to know our guest who is delightful. I mean, as are all our guests, but this we were just talking um off air about the the particular glow that this guest has. So if you're if you're gonna skip one, not maybe not this one.
1: One other thing I wanted to remind the audience about, uh, uh Leah, Nora, the, the rest of our team that, that helped produce these episodes really put a lot of work into after the fact, distilling the episode down into these show notes and making great figures that go along with them. So I just wanted to let the audience know, definitely keep an eye out for those are on our website, or if you sign up for our mailing list, they get delivered directly to you weekly. So we, we don't plug those often. So we're, we're giving a, a shameless self plug here. Now, uh, the great Dr. Leah Witt is returning to join us. She is uh, dual, triple-boarded probably, in internal medicine, pulmonary critical care, and geriatric medicine, and she's currently a uh, geriatric attending at UCSF. Leah, thank you for returning to the show.
3: Yeah. Thanks, Matt. Too many board exams. Um, so today we are back with another episode of the Jerry Siders, our geriatrics spin-off from the Curbsiders. And we have a very exciting topic today, one very close to my heart, which is multimorbidity. No physician is free from, uh, no physician will, can escape multimorbidity. We all see it. Some of us have a little bit more time in clinic to deal with it. Um, but we all need to learn how to deal with it. So Dr. We is going to walk us through some frameworks to address multimorbidity in the outpatient setting primarily, and also dive into some specific conditions. We'll talk about AFib, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, cancer screenings. So glad to have Dr. We with us.
2: Dr. Wee is an associate professor of clinical medicine and a geriatric medicine fellowship program director at the University of Pennsylvania, Perlman School of Medicine. After residency, his wife matched to Geisinger Medical Center for Pediatrics. During that time, he worked as a solo practice family physician for four years in Shikshini, PA, which is one of the most Pennsylvania-sounding names I've ever heard. <laughs> Shikshini. Shikshini. Shikshini on Shackamaxin Avenue, where he saw patients <laughs> in a very Philadelphia-centric humor, where he saw patients in the hospital, office, emergency room, ICU, nursing home, assisted living facility, home, a free clinic, and served as the high school football team physician. Um, and I... I think we particularly benefit from this topic because while we get a lot of training and residency about managing specific medical conditions, we less regularly get any didactics or even really real-world experience in covering the patient with lots of multimorbidity who walks into your clinic. And so we're, we're very excited to bring you this episode um, to help clarify and sharpen your practice.
1: Josh, I'm so excited to have you here. I think this has been, you and I have talked about this. What do we talk about this? Maybe going on like three years ago or something, when I first met you, we talked about having you on the show. So it's finally happening.
0: You guys must be really good friends.
1: (laughs) Well, in spirit. Yeah, in spirit. And, uh, you know, we're we're working on the friendship tonight, Stuart. (laughs) Josh, could you tell tell the audience uh, why everyone should be so excited to be good friends with you? Tell them a little bit about yourself and, you know, something outside the world of medicine as well.
4: Sure. Uh, One is I love uh, what I do, and my goal in life is to enjoy um, everything I do, whether it's my personal life, my family, and my work. And so my goal isn't just to be smart or bright, but to be kind and compassionate and to be full of enthusiasm. I sort of view life as a big buffet, and the goal is to Eat as much of it as I can without feeling bloated. Eat as much of life.
0: <laughs> that is a strange metaphor. Uh, Does it fill you up?
4: Well, I tell people I'm not burned out. I just overate. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: okay. All right. Great. Well, Stuart, you have the floor.
1: Did you want to ask him anything else?
0: Uh, well, w- wait, what's your favorite failure or my favorite one is your uh most memorable patient complaint and what did you learn from it?
4: <laughs> oh man. The favorite failure was a hard one. Um because none of my failures feel good, uh to be honest. Mm. Um it always feels like I've let down somebody. Um you ever I watched have Animal House? You know, I actually never have, I have to say. <laughs> um but actually, so I actually was thinking about this question. And I asked my wife permission to share this. I remember once I was on uh, hospital service and I got completely wrapped up in it and lost all sense of work-life balance. And my wife was quite upset at me. She doesn't actually remember this. But after we um, <laughs> were discussing, she said to me, you know, the problem is you're disappointing the wrong people. And I remember Mm. saying that, her saying that, yes, it hurts, Um, but it made things very clear that in order to maintain work-life balance, I had to make sure I disappoint the right people. And I hate to say that includes people at work, Um, but I knew for sure I didn't want it to be my wife again. And um, so somebody asked me a couple months later what my wellness goal was, and it was to make sure that I disappoint the right people. It's kind of a odd way to think about it but um you know you can't please everybody um and you decide there's certain people in your life that you're not going to disappoint and my wife is certainly one of those
0: that's an important lesson
2: well yeah this feels like a, a fluffy transition i got nothing um but i was gonna <laughs> so in let's let's in the the buffet table that is life um tell me about a piece of pop culture that you've consumed recently that you've enjoyed
4: oh all sorts of stuff um I have three kids, so we watch a lot of Disney movies. So just saw The Lion King, um, enjoy Marvel movies. Yeah, a lot of Disney and sort of pop culture that way. I did read the book Unbroken recently, um, which was about uh, Louis Zamperini. And that was um, inspiring, to say the least. So those are some of the things that I have been reading and watching recently.
3: I can't believe I haven't seen The Lion King. I have not missed anything that Beyonce has done until really? The Lion King. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Wait, like the original I mean, Lion
3: King? No, no, no. The this is the live action. That's what your you <laughs> Oh, oh okay. right. Well, I haven't. I haven't seen it. Or the live like, action. not <laughs> live CG. Action. Yeah. Yeah, CG with Be- you know, Beyonce's new song. I got to see it. It's an insane cast.
2: Like it's. I, I know. Yeah. Critically, it didn't do well. Commercially, it did fantastic. But there's, really? it's just overflowing with talent. Like the is amount it, of is
0: it worth watching?
2: watching. Well, I guess if you're saying it like that, then yes, it is, Stuart. Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Someone can let me know. I just know the cast is good. I'm not, I'm not going to watch it, but I'm glad that other people are enjoying it.
1: Yeah. Uh,
3: um, Josh, I'll ask you, what's the best advice you've ever gotten as a learner or as a teacher?
4: So as a learner, um, I remember the first time I did a history and physical on a patient, I had an emeritus professor um, watching me. And I launch into a history and physical, and I ask a 10-system review of systems. And the professor allowed me to do that. And at the end, he says to me, "Uh, you know, you don't have to be a detective. You're a physician. Patients actually want to tell you what's wrong. You don't have to ask all the right questions, uncover it. You just have to listen. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I'll be honest. Since then, I have never done a ten system review of systems ever. Oh my wow. God!
0: Coders and billers, cover your ears. He, he doesn't. Yeah. He yes. So well, that's time. why he says all other review or all, all other systems reviewed were negative, except for that, which is noted in HPI. Correct. He's done a really good job of that.
1: Stuart has your numbers in front of him there, Josh. I, don't, somehow, <laughs> yeah, I do. Somehow <laughs> he has all, access to that.
0: They're all nine nine two two ones and two three ones. I'm so sorry.
4: <laughs> yeah. So the other, I would say as a teacher, uh, my brother, when he was in residency, was also volunteering with a church youth group. And the youth pastor said to him, uh, you teach what you know, but you reproduce what you are. Mm. And as a teacher, I've thought a lot about um, what it means to model and actually try to be what I want my learners to be Um, and not just teach knowledge or transfer facts. Um, but that my first step is to really think about who I am first.
0: What if what you are is a teacher?
4: Uh, then I will teach people to be teachers.
1: Stuart, you don't have to answer Stuart's questions. I'll uh, just let you know. Oh, okay.
4: <laughs> I get a lot of editing and post. It'll
2: be
1: fine. Leah, I'm going to give you a chance to give your pick of the week because uh, I think we should move into the topic. I don't think we should do like everybody doing picks of the weeks unless people have like really important <sighs> ones to get out there. I have a good one.
3: All right, Leah, go ahead. Okay, my pick of the week, and this is just such an excellent wellness pick of the week. It's the Down Dog Yoga app. This is an app. Download it on your phone, stream it to your Apple TV. For $50-ish a year, you can do sort of like a made-to-order yoga class. There's no more excuses for not going to yoga. And the classes, you can make them from five minutes to 90 minutes. So even if you have five minutes, you can do a yoga class. Uh, highly, highly recommend.
0: All right. Stuart,
3: what, what's your pick?
0: So my, my pick is Dimash Kudaibergin. He's a, uh, a Kazakh a Kazakh singer. So specifically, look him up. Uh, look up Dimash. So D I M A S H S O S on YouTube. Blown away. This guy's vocal range is insane. Six octaves. As someone who is classically trained, it's just insane.
1: Okay, I w- I am very intrigued. I have to say, I'm definitely going to check this out.
0: So it, it's it's a French song originally from 1978. It's just an amazing. It's it's a really good song, but. He's just an amazing singer. He's quite literally the best singer I've ever heard in my entire life. And that's hmm. like, I, I I, can't. And get you've heard of yourself that. sing. Yeah, thanks a lot, man.
3: <laughs> you can listen to his video during yeah. Shavasana for my yoga app. Really?
0: That's cool. <laughs> just oh, pull wait, it wait. Up.
1: <laughs> Leah, let's, uh, let's start with the case from Cashlack.
3: All right. So our case uh, today in our office, we have Ms. Lottie Happenin. She is an 83-year-old patient with hypertension, hyperlipidemia. She's had a TIA. She has type 2 diabetes, not an insulin, AFib, osteoporosis, depression, and she had breast cancer in her 60s uh, and was treated with a right-sided mastectomy and radiation. She's coming in because she's been staying with her daughter the last few months, and her daughter thinks it might be time for her to establish care with a new primary care doctor. She has a few chief complaints. Number one, she had a fall about a week ago. Um, She has chronic knee pain, but since her fall, she has had more right knee pain. And she also needs med refills. She takes nine medications daily. Um, Her vitals are a blood pressure of 160 over 88. Heart rate is irregular, uh, and the rate is 95. Her respiratory rate is 14. Her temp is 98.6. So, Josh... Ms. Lottie happening has a lot happening. Um, can you tell us where you would start, where you would go with her, just seeing her come to your geriatrics clinic?
4: Yeah, so I'll start with um, what I would feel, which is um, even now I would feel possibly overwhelmed if I'm running a little bit late, um, if I am uh, have a full schedule. So one is I would acknowledge that um, it certainly is a little bit overwhelming. Um, And then I would acknowledge that not everything is going to have to be done today and not everything can get done today. Um, And my goal is to figure out at least one thing important to me that I want to try to manage that day and at least one thing important to them um, in establishing a therapeutic relationship.
1: Josh, can I just ask you uh, to to just say say that one more time? So you said at least one thing, you want them to do one thing important to me and one thing important to them?
4: Correct. So what might feel most important to me, um, let's say she has atrial fibrillation, she's not on anticoagulation or, uh, you know, something is uh, completely decompensated or uncontrolled. You know, as a physician, I might feel that that's a really urgent issue. She might care most about something else. Um, And I think in terms of agenda setting, it's important. I usually let the other person go first um, in terms of picking what matters to them. Um, But in order to make it collaborative um, and to establish a relationship, I am going to nudge them as gently and kindly as possible that I'm going to also suggest something that I think is also important.
2: And Josh, I think that's amazing advice, like for any kind of primary care, I think that's critically important for the agenda setting part. But when you're framing the discussion, how explicit are you that, okay, today I'm going to talk about one thing for me and one thing for you, do you say it in that way, or do you just sort of allow that to kind of follow naturally during the conversation? Do you understand what I'm asking?
4: Yeah, so um, sometimes I will. So you've heard the studies where people interrupt patients within so many seconds of a conversation. And there are studies that if you let the patient speak, you actually uncover everything faster and it takes less time. So I try to get everything out on the table. I am aware of time. I will let them know that we won't cover everything. And I ask them, I say, what's most important to you? When you think about all these issues and they're all serious, I try to emphasize that it matters. Um, but I ask them, "What do they? how do they want to spend the time? Um, at some point during the... Visit. I will also emphasize what matters to me, but hopefully I've listened to them well enough. I could put it in some sort of context. But I will sometimes ask them. I say, you know, I wish we could get to all of these things. I use a lot of wish statements sometimes. Um, but uh, what matters most to you?
1: So if she says, if she says, you know, today I'm really most concerned about my knee pain. Your, how would you work in your complaint? Or how would you work it? not your complaint, how would you work in, like, your concern for this patient?
4: Yeah, so the question is whether I could lump. So one of the, I would say, tools in the toolbox of managing multimorbidity is lumping. Um, And could I lump in her knee pain with falls and maybe even atrial fibrillation and anticoagulation where it becomes a singular issue with a singular plan um, in order to make it a win-win? The goal is to make things, you know, work together instead of parallel play um, and to sort of align agendas. Mm-hmm.
3: Josh, you just mentioned a term, multimorbidity. So what exactly does that mean? Does that mean five medical problems, 10? What does it mean?
4: Yeah, so there's actually a lot of different terms, um, multimorbidity, multiple chronic conditions, um, and Mary Tenetti has a new one, multi-complexity. Um, but I think just from a primary care perspective, it just means you're dealing with multiple issues, period. And for me, that means more than one because a physician can take two issues and make it seem like four. And so the challenge is always to streamline things and make things seem more simple instead of more complicated. It only takes two to make things more complicated.
0: How, how long are your appointments typically?
4: So, um where I work, it's 30-minute visits for a follow-up, and actually I I try to squeeze them into 25 for a, a variety of reasons.
3: All right. So back to Ms. Happening, she has come in with a lot of questions and a lot of medical conditions. Do you have a framework or a standard approach to squeeze in all of these issues in the time that you have? Maybe you have 30 minutes. A lot of primary care doctors even have less. How, how do you get started with that?
4: Yeah. So in addition to making sure that we at least touch on one issue most important to the patient, and in addition, as the physician, that I address something that's important to me, it's really setting up a longer-term game plan for just working through these issues in a systematic way. Part of it is just relationship building and then working establishing a process. Um, But the agenda setting is Really, the key part to the first visit. Usually, I have a patient, a family member, um, and sometimes even multiple family members, um, and myself, um, and establishing a path is probably the goal for the first visit. I remember once I was in Costco, and on the shelf, they said add a rear view camera to your car in three easy steps. Uh, step one was strap the camera to your license plate, Te- step two was put the video screen on your dashboard and step three was connect to the electrical system <laughs> um, and then the second thing I think about are the nice guidelines for multi-morbidity that um, the full guideline has 443 pages and so the goal is to in the this podcast present something that is somewhere in between connect to the electrical system and a 443 page guideline <laughs> Um So the American Geriatric Society, and I think it was 2012, put out a multimorbidity guideline that they updated this year with um, three action steps. And so that was how they have been working on it. Of course, it's been an iterative process.
3: Okay, so let's talk, let's dive a little bit into Ms. Happenin's conditions. Um, there's several to talk about. So hypertension, hyperlipidemia, heart failure, AFib, osteoporosis. Um, hmm. So I first of all, maybe we could just take one of those, um, one of those for Ms. Lottie Happenin. So she's coming in primarily with knee pain. So there's osteoporosis. Arthritis and her fall, um, and she's on many different medications. How would you um, think through? Um, oh gosh, what would be the question? How would you think through pr- sort of prioritizing um, benef- time to benefit for treatment for medica- uh conditions like hypertension for Ms. Lottie What sort of goal setting would you would you make, Ms. Lottie
4: So there's a number of questions that I would ask and. Um, time frame is one of those questions. What is the time frame to benefit or what time frame should I worry about at this point? So one question is about the disease and treatments, which is the time to benefit or the time frame for efficacy. The other is the chief complaints and what is the patient worried about? Are they worried about things now or things in the future? Um, and I think now versus future is probably the simplest way to think about it as opposed to months versus years versus decades. But even just now versus later um, is a simple way to think about it. So for example, in the management of diabetes, I know we're going to talk about knee pain, but in the management of diabetes, the benefit of tight control is later, but the harms of treatment of diabetes is now. Um, and you can think about now versus later for a number of questions. So For somebody like her, the complaint of knee pain and multiple falls is an immediate issue. Um, People do die from falls. People have a lot of trauma from falls. Um, And so that's actually a fairly immediate threat um, compared to almost any of her other chronic diseases, to be honest.
3: You just mentioned diabetes. So just to get a little bit in the weeds, what sort of targets would you set for Ms. Lottie Happen in terms of A1c goal? So we we already know she's not on insulin. She's taking oral hypoglycemic um, agents. How would you talk to her about an A1c goal, for example?
4: Right. So... If the time frame is now, then the goal I think about in terms of defense, you're trying to make sure that they're not symptomatically hyperglycemic and not symptomatically hypoglycemic. So you're trying to get as far away as you can from those two bookends. Um, And I would pick an A1C in the middle, somewhere between eight and nine, something as safe as possible for the immediate future, where they're not going to have polyuria, polydipsia, but they're not going to have falls from hypoglycemic events. So uh, I'm going to be a scaredy cat and just try to pick the safest A1C target or the safest medications I can for the immediate future.
1: Josh, I wanted to take a, just a step back and point something out. When we were we were talking about frameworks and and part of where these questions that Leah's been asking are coming from, step like domain two and three of the frameworks. So domain two was... Interpretation of the evidence base, and then step three was frame decisions in context of risks, benefits, and prognosis. So we're sort of on step three here, talking about like you're framing it in terms of like the risks and benefits and the prognosis of the patient. Like you know, is this like if we treat this person's diabetes really tightly, are they going to live long enough to see any benefit from that tight control? And we've done a whole other shows about talking about tight control and whether or not that that even works. Um, but let's just say blood pressure you know is she going to live long enough for to benefit from the blood pressure treatment but the other thing i wanted to point out to the listeners is that and and i love this from the i guess it was a paper that was in jags that that pub, where they published this framework and it's it basically said like the clinical trials that create guidelines often exclude older, sicker patients with multimorbidity. so the exact type of patients that we're talking about. So this is a lot of a gray area where we're trying to say, like, we're trying to extrapolate guidelines, often multiple sets of guidelines, like the AFib guidelines, the heart failure guidelines, the diabetes guidelines, the blood pressure guidelines, to these older folks, and then they end up on, like, 20 medications. And I, I think mishappening is sort of one of the people that would fall into that category. Right. So the
4: challenge with multimorbidity is it is beyond the evidence. So you take a trial like SPRINT where you can think about all the individual exclusion criteria, but at the end of the day, the SPRINT trial excludes multimorbidity, excludes frailty, and sort of end of story, that's what it does. Um, And so the management of multimorbidity really depends on clinical reasoning and having some sort of framework. Um, So I will take one more step back (laughs) and set this up again in that I do find that the AGS guidelines, um, when it says step one, elicit patient preferences, to me that's actually not specific enough. And so when I think about patient preferences, I think about three things, longevity, function, and quality of life. And then the correlate question is, does treating that disease affect longevity function or quality of life and so you ask a goal of care that then has a corresponding question to the treatment the second would be the time frame to benefit what time frame does the patient care about and then what time frame does treating that disease have the third would be what adverse effects or side effects is the patient willing to put up with and what's the adverse effect or burden of treating the disease Now, the fourth question that I ask is, how well can the patient handle complex care? And then the corresponding treatment question is, how high yield is the treatment? And if somebody can't handle complex care, I'm going to cut out the low yield treatments. To put it another way, if somebody has food insecurity and they don't have enough food, you're not going to tell them about the benefits of asparagus water from Whole Foods you're going to make sure they have basic food. You're not going to worry whether the food is organic. So if somebody has complexity issues, you're not going to fuss with them about the benefits of Crestor versus generic Simvastatin. You are going to make sure they get on a medication that they can afford that is once a day that they can take. Um, Or you're not going to prioritize everything at once. You're going to prioritize what they're able to manage. So that's how... I, I would say I'm a little bit off or differ than the AGS guidelines is to me there's four questions to ask about the patient in terms of uh goals of care and then questions that correspond to the disease and treatment.
1: That's great. Uh Paul, Stewart, Leah, any follow up comments on this before we kind of move move forward with going through some of the specific some more of the specifics of Ms. Happenin's case.
3: Josh, I'm just wondering, what sorts of questions do you ask to get at patient preferences? You know, sometimes when I'm talking to patients about about medical conditions and treatments, sometimes they'll say to me, "I don't know, you're the doctor, mm-hmm. um, you decide." Or, I've always taken this medication. Now I'm talking about a medication like a statin or di- yeah, diabetes medications. Um, how how do you get to the questions? What are the actual questions you ask to get to their preferences and, and elicit those preferences?
4: Yeah, so probably my favorite question to ask my patients is, um, what does a good day look like to you? Because um, I love to hear who they are as a person and what makes them happy, um, what type of day they are looking forward to, um, what type of day they are hoping for, And then I ask them, what does a bad day look like to you? And then the goal would be to put my treatments into that context. And when I ask patients what a good day looks like, they're not, well, it's a day when my blood pressure is 120 and my fasting sugar was 85. Um, They tell me really wonderful things about themselves. And um, I really like that.
1: Some of the old chief master sergeants into Air Force Stewart, they want they the blood show ch- up
0: with their bl- they show up with their bloody uh, blood glucose and like this was a good day. Look <laughs> at my blood sugar; it amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. It's got to be ninety to one hundred ten.
1: That might be specific to the like retired
0: Air Force <laughs> population. I, I don't know. It's That's not. Funny. Nothing makes me happier than the blood stained glucose log.
1: Really, it, yeah, it, I have to put on story. if I
0: have to put on gloves to handle your blood glucose log. That tells me I know where your focus is at. <laughs>
1: Well, let's go through. So it sounds like for diabetes, you've you've sort of given us your framework there. And I think you you need a lot, in my opinion, you need a lot of runway for diabetes with with reasonable glucose control. I I think it's more the agent that matters and the way you get there that matters than getting the A1C less than 7 at this point. So I, I like your framework there. Uh, where we're just going to try to avoid the high, very highs and the very lows where they're going to have symptoms and possibly be harmed. What about for high blood pressure? What, how much runway do you need there to have a benefit, and how do you counsel patients around that?
4: So um, hypertension with the SPRINT trial um, now has amazing evidence that it reduces all-cause mortality, um, and that is one of the things that sticks out about treating blood pressure in older adults. Um, One thing that I find interesting is um, a lot of providers don't know what treatments in older adults reduce all-cause mortality and what doesn't. Um, So certainly treating AFib with anticoagulation and treating hypertension, but not diabetes, not osteoporosis, not cholesterol, um, you know, certainly not diastolic heart failure, um COPD is a tough one to budge all cause mortality. So when I think about hypertension, one of the things is it's one of the few diseases that if I add a pill within 3 years I have a number needed to treat of about 85 to prevent one all cause mortality. So first you have to frame in terms of efficacy before getting to time frame, but the sprint trial was a, about 3 years. Um and the thing about number needed to treat, which is one of my favorite statistics I have to say, is um, over shorter time frames the numbers high, over long frame time frames the numbers lower. So you have to say number need to treat over a certain time frame. So the Sprint trial was, you know, number you treat for of sixty five to prevent one composite outcome over three point two years. Um, and then it would be double that over half the time, half of that over double the time. Um, but it is an, an effective treatment. It is one of the few things I tell patients that I can do in the office that'll reduce their all-cause mortality with high-level evidence.
1: Are you tri- are you typically following the 140 uh, systolic blood pressure goal for patients with multimorbidity like older patients or do you do you follow a different target than that?
4: So the SPRINT trial excluded dementia, unintentional weight loss, people from nursing homes, people who couldn't enroll in a trial. In that sense, it excluded frailty. And then it excluded diabetes, people with a history of stroke, um, certain types of CKD, etc. So excluded people with multimorbidity. So if somebody is multimorbid and or frail, then I don't worry about the SPRINT trial too much. Mm -hmm. When their health when their health situation gets so boring that we're trying to figure out what else could we do, that's the right time to add a medication.
1: Okay, for blood pressure. Got it. For blood pressure. Yeah.
3: I think an interesting geriatric side note about blood pressure treatment is how blood pressure medications often get intensified in the inpatient setting. And I'm wondering um, what your thoughts are about that. If we could... Talk about that. You know, I think we have a a lot of well intentioned inpatient physicians who are making changes in maybe a, a, a not normal outpatient setting.
4: Yeah. I mean, I think it's sort of the idea that everybody thinks they're a better than average driver or everybody thinks they can take, they can do one more thing to make the patient better. And as physicians, we can't help but tinker. And I think to a certain extent, we're also optimists. We think, you know, maybe we can do better. Uh, You know, we see that time at destination, our GPS, we think, boy, we can beat that. (laughs) What a Um, good analogy. (laughs)
3: I'm like, I'm not going to be late. Nope.
4: (laughs) Right. And I think that whole idea of less than signs um, in disease targets is actually really bad for geriatrics. I think we need to appreciate J-shaped curves and just realize that we actually can make things worse. Um, and, you know, that some decisions have a longer time frame. that there isn't any rush uh, to modify some of these things right now. I mean, a number to treat of 65 for blood pressure control still means that 64 people don't benefit. Um, and so for an individual patient, it's still unlikely to benefit them. Right. mm
3: mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a new article, we'll link to it in the show notes, um, in GMI um, just last month that that showed that blood pressure medications in the hospital, intensification of antihypertensive in the hospital um, is associated with the short-term harms without long-term benefits, especially in these geriatric patients. So um, something to think about for sure.
4: If I could teach polypharmacy, it would be using the game Jenga. And the question is... Should you add one more medication? That fear you have when you pull out that block and put it on top, is how most people should think about medications in older adults. Just be
0: a little bit more scared.
3: Yeah. Especially the Benadryl block. Don't
0: yeah. some of those blocks are heavier than others. <laughs> yes. What else
1: what else can we address for mishappening here? Uh, it, you you've mentioned the AFib a couple times. Yeah. Um,
3: AFib and hyperlipidemia. I would love to talk about statins. I think this is the area that has a lot of doubt um, for a lot of providers. And in at AGS in the last this last year, there was a debate by some experts about the use of statins, sort of in the multimorbid older adult. And I left feeling more confused. Um, and maybe so. I, maybe I can give a case to highlight this. So
1: this was yeah. At Cashlac, uh, in the past year or so, I saw an elderly woman. She had Parkinsonian features. She she clearly had dementia, but hadn't been formally diagnosed. And the family had been trying to kind of care for her at home. And she'd had a number of falls. And over the course of those falls, she'd been to the ER a couple times. There there had been strokes, kind of deeper strokes that were seen on CAT scan. Um, but not like not just hyper not from hypertension like what looked like she'd had an actual stroke from atherosclerosis and uh, this patient was almost bedbound and didn't speak much and the family when I, I i was telling them what we'd found you know why we thought that mom was falling we suspected parkinsonism and they were like well what are you going to do for the stroke because mom was not on aspirin wasn't on a statin and we had to have a conversation about like, do we think mom's gonna benefit from this? She's eighty-five or eighty-six, she's had a couple strokes, and she's starting to fall, she has Parkinsonism. And it was hard for them to accept that the answer wasn't wasn't to probably start a s aspirin and statin in this person who was now falling, bedbound, not speaking much, and had really just kind of been been declining. So how do you how do you handle that kind of thing, Josh?
4: Yeah, so Part of it is trying to reframe patients from lots of care is good care um, and reframing what is optimal care. That's why I really don't like using the term loose control, as I mentioned earlier. Um, I do try to talk to patients about what is most likely going to help them now, uh, what treatments are meant to help them later, uh, what things will actually make them feel better. Versus what things are just preventative. So um, if a person wants to have some goals for the future where they say, I don't want my mom to have another stroke and they want a cholesterol medication, um, I do try to emphasize that focusing on function and immediate quality of life um, is a way that improves. Longevity and decreases morbidity for older adults. It doesn't sound as sophisticated as lots of medications, but it's actually more useful. Um, And I try to make sure that the family knows that the care that is being recommended will allow them to be as loving as they can to their um, family member. You know, you want to set up families for success where they feel that they've been a successful advocate. Um, As a family member um, and that their family member isn't missing out. So I think it's really important that when you choose to focus on goals now, um, it doesn't mean that the future doesn't matter. um, And it doesn't mean that they're not allowed to have hopes for the future. Um, But you're laying out a pathway that'll get them to where they want to get to. And so there's a lot of unspoken Mm -hmm. bundling between a person's goals of care and treatment preferences. So if somebody's treatment preference is to have a statin, there's an underlying goal of care that I want my mom to be as functional as possible. Mm -hmm. And if I can, I will drive a wedge between those two things if I don't think those two things should be bundled. So I might say, use a wish statement and said, I wish that a cholesterol medication will improve your mother's quality of life and the things that you care about. But when I've tried to do that in the past, it's been disappointing that it hasn't made much of a difference. Because I don't want people to think that I'm not trying, that I don't care, that I don't hear their goals. But I will tell them that when we've tried, It hasn't worked out the way we wanted, and it's been disappointing. Because to a certain extent, it's intuitive. Well, if my mom had a stroke, I don't want her to have have another stroke, then I don't want her to be on aspirin, or I want her to be on aspirin and cholesterol medication. And we bundle those treatments and goals of care, and those things get unbundled sometimes as people get older.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like you're addressing subtext and working on sort of goal alignment, which I I think is fantastic. Have you ever has it ever been helpful to sort of frame it in more objective terms and sort of use more scientific language when you kind of feel – so, for instance, saying, you know, there's really no evidence this provides any kind of benefit in, in your mother. So, if, if sometimes you're not actually sort of connecting on the emotional or sort of the subtext level, is it helpful to kind of scientificize it? I don't think that's a word.
4: <laughs> yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. So, if to communicate a negative study, to say that a treatment is ineffective – Um, I'll anticipate that the family will say, but it might work in my mother. Yeah. Or my mother's a fighter, it's going to be effective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And so, no, I do find that in addition to communicating the facts, so um, in addition to saying, you know, trials show that statins are not effective at decreasing stroke, they might decrease non-fatal MIs, but they actually don't improve all-cause mortality. I might say something like that, but I will say when we've tried our best, to prevent death with cholesterol medications, it's been disappointing that it hasn't worked. So I do find that it has to be both because the the desire to have a aspirin or a statin on board is a factual request, but it's also an emotional request. And so you have to deal with both. Right.
0: Do you find that you're more addressing the patients or the families in these conversations?
4: Uh, all of the above. Uh, there's no question. It's um all of the above. A lot of times the families will have a different goal uh, than the patient, and so then uh, the patients often tend to have very, sh- or not often, but patients can have shorter timeframes than the families in yeah. terms of what they care about. They want to
0: feel better today. Yeah, because i I found if I kind of like, if I talk to the patient him or herself and I say, hey, you know, we can stop this one medication, they're like. That's amazing. Thank you so much. I'm tired of my pill salad in the morning. And they leave the office. They come back, I don't know, a month or two later, and their family has convinced them that this medication is necessary, so they've called my my nurse for a refill of this medication. So I end up calling the family and end up having the same discussion with the family over the phone. It's it's a little disappointing to some extent.
4: It is. Yeah, the the key is to tie in the goal of care and the treatment received and to make sure that people understand what they're getting. And if somebody says, you know, I really, I mean, I've had patients who are, uh, have stopped eating because they're actively dying and the family's asking me, why did I stop the cholesterol medication? I had that conversation before. I said, well, at this point, it isn't going to help your loved one. Um, but then to follow up and see what it is that they're most concerned about, uh, there's a lot of reframing. I mean, I find as a geriatrician, I often have to reframe traditional treatments and be more clear about how treatments achieve goals because there's a lot of assumptions.
1: Yeah, I I really I like the way that you think about things and frame things, and I don't think we're necessarily like we're taught use this medication to treat this to treat this problem. But oftentimes, we're not taught the outcomes as well as we're taught the treatments, you know, the Mm -hmm. outcomes that those treatments target. So it's hard. I think you've taught yourself to kind of learn the evidence in such a way that when you talk to patients, you can use these outcomes and point to them and say, listen, you know, unless they had five years and they were looking to prevent this goal, this treatment doesn't make sense for them. And I, I think what everyone can take away from this is that that's a great way to to have these kind of conversations um, because it it, it helps everybody understand what they're getting, the physician included.
4: Yeah, no, I mean, so uh, I sent uh, a chart um, to you guys about different chronic diseases and what they achieve. You know, when I think about if somebody has longevity goals, I think about hypertension and AFib. If people have a really short time frame. I think for example, treating systolic heart failure, the beta blocker ACE studies were thirty to ninety days. An incredibly short time frame. Whereas blood pressure and cholesterol had timeframes, the studies, Prosper study, Hivet Study, these type of studies tend to be around two to four years. Um, you know, cancer screening studies tend to be a lot longer. Um, osteoporosis studies are several years. And I think as you sort of mull over these studies and you compare them, and as you ask the right question, you get a feel for what treatments are preventative, which ones make a person feel better now. Treating heart failure and COPD makes a person feel better now. Treating cholesterol and diabetes and even hypertension are future-oriented issues. Um, But you know, as you think about diseases in this way, you'll get a better feel. It's like, you know, you shooting an SLR camera or driving a stick shift. You just get a better feel of how these diseases fit together. So for Ms. Lottie Happening, let's say she has very traditional longevity-minded goals of care, and the goal is to simplify her complexity Uh, But the goal is to try to treat everything as well as possible to minimize morbidity over a fairly long time frame. To me, problem number one would be her falls. And within that falls, I would lump her knee pain, uh, the amount of supervision she has at home. One thing we didn't talk about was her cognitive status and why she moved in with her daughter several months ago. I would lump in diabetes with the goal of avoiding hypoglycemia to avoid falls I would lump in hypertension to avoid blood pressures less than 140 to avoid falls. I would think about AFib and anticoagulation and whether the fall risk was big enough, knowing the controversy in that data, whether or not that's something I should consider, and then her polypharmacy as well. So one way to simplify her problem list is to lump everything into the problem that is going to most immediately hurt her, which is her falls. I would say hypertension and AFib would come next because of the mortality benefit. I would put diabetes next after that to avoid lows. Depression, because it's symptomatic and often underappreciated how seriously morbid or what sort of morbidity diabetes or depression leads to patients. Hyperlipidemia, I would put next because non fatal MIs are still worth avoiding but most people don't miss their statins. Breast cancer follow-up and cancer screening would go uh, towards the end. When you look at number need to screen for cancer screening, it's often in the hundreds to thousands, as opposed to the number need to treat for chronic diseases, which is often somewhere between, let's say, 40 and 100, depending on what disease you're treating. And so primary prevention with cancer screening is a tenfold magnitude less effective than treating chronic diseases. Now, let's say she had a very palliative-minded mindset. I would say you would still worry about her falls. But then you might focus on function and supervision, and you might follow a similar tree, but then you just might not worry about things that have future benefit with no functional benefit, things like hyperlipidemia, even osteoporosis, if it's years out, um, and the history of breast cancer. You might have a very short focus on time frame. How can I make her feel better right now? I was talking to some of my colleagues and they said, sometimes they think about what is the family capable of doing and just starting there and working your way backwards. So if the only thing they can handle is making sure she doesn't fall, well, then you just deal with that one problem and you don't pretend that you can handle more, um, and set up the family for failure. Um, you just deal with what they can handle and, um, Call it a success.
1: You mentioned the AFib and the anticoagulation and falls. I think we should really hit on that. How do you approach that one? We did a I think it was like episode number three. We talked about the study where they kind of looked back and they estimated how many falls you'd need to have. It was like two hundred and ninety five or something, you know, to have a mm-hmm. intracerebral hemorrhage. So how do you t- how do you counsel patients on that? Like for this specific patient, Miss Happening. So
4: the problem is, is that you only need to fall once the wrong way to have a problem, mm-hmm. um, and that's where that study falls short. So I have had patients fall and have intracranial hemorrhage, and they didn't fall 300 times a year. They fell once, hit their head on the wrong thing, um, and had a problem. Mm-hmm. So you present things as pros and cons um, and trade-offs. Um, And to a certain extent, there is a math problem to this, but there isn't. It's partially an emotional problem. You have some sense of what's going to bring the patient and family peace or what's going to disrupt their peace most. Um, Are they willing to live if a treatment causes a complication and say, well, you know, we went for it, we knew this could happen, and we made the best decision? Or is the thought process of the patient or family, if we only want to pursue treatment if we have a good outcome and a complication means that um, we made the wrong decision. If they're of the mindset of the second type, then uh, they're not not—they're not up for treatments that have small therapeutic windows uh, where you're trying to skate between pros and cons. You might hold your cards and just say, you know what, let's sit tight. Because you're not always going to make the patient better by adding that one more medication.
1: Yeah, we're. I forgot we're playing Jenga, so we yeah, gotta, that's right. That's right. You have to think of it that way.
3: The other topic, sort of a little outside multimorbidity, that comes up a lot for me with these patients is cancer screening, uh, and it's such a delicate conversation about when to stop cancer screening, especially if um, I'm proposing that we stop before the age limits of cancer screenings that are set out in the guidelines. Um, Ms, and Ms. Lottie-Hapman certainly it, it doesn't look like, perhaps we would talk about her history of breast cancer, but other cancer screenings would not be applicable for her. How do you talk to patients about when to stop and when c- cancer screening is inappropriate for them?
4: So the problem with cancer screening is that it doesn't, the efficacy doesn't follow a sigmoid curve where there's an inflection point and it all of a sudden becomes not effective. So what happens as a person gets older, frail, or more multi is that the number needs to screen slowly or sometimes quickly edges up, um, but it doesn't go from effective to ineffective at the age of 75. And so I do communicate that this is one of those tests with diminishing returns, that I would have to screen more and more people to prevent one cancer death, Are they up for the type of treatments that have very low yields? Um, Or these tests are designed to be most effective for younger adults. Unfortunately, they're not as effective, and older adults are more likely to get side effects from this type of thing, whether it's unnecessary testing or complications from procedures. And I think that's a very familiar concept to patients, that they're more likely to get a side effect than a younger person. I am also really careful that they understand that I care if they get cancer. So I wish we had an effective test for preventing cancer in older adults, but it's disappointing to me that we don't. And I think communicating again—it's driving a wedge between what the patient's requesting and what the evidence reflects—that um, I still care about their goals, but. You know, what they're requesting won't actually get them to their goals.
3: A tool that I really like using to sh- as sort of a patient demonstration tool is ePrognosis. I'm not yes. sure if anybody here has used ePrognosis. Okay, um, we'll, we'll, we can link to it in the show notes. Um, it comes out of UCSF, some researchers at UCSF, and some aggregated um, survival, sort of time to benefit, especially. And discussing risks and benefits around cancer screening in particular. So there's a whole section around cancer screening. And then there's some um, tools around communicating prognosis. But you can sort of enter patient demographics, some conditions, and there are some visual tools to show patients how many patients will be diagnosed with cancer, how many will be experience a harm, what the harms are. Uh, so it can be a little bit clearer, at least more visual than talking about numbers without a visual.
4: Yeah, so number need treat makes sense to me. It doesn't make sense to most people, including most physicians. But um, pictographs are great. Of course, Louise Aronson has written about the use of narrative. And so sometimes I'll use that. The person who pursues cancer screening is this type of person. And the person who doesn't want to pursue cancer screening is this type of person. And then the patient can match themselves to a narrative more easily than they can match themselves to numbers yeah
1: that's great josh uh definitely you're invited back whenever you want to come back and talk about other things but i'm going to ask you for take-home points now
4: yeah so i would say for take-home points one thing i would nudge everybody to do is to think about the goals of care implication of their treatments Does treating this achieve a longevity benefit, a functional benefit, or a quality of life benefit? And will that benefit the patient now or later? And if you just think about those two sort of categories, what it achieves and when it achieves it, you'll be able to classify a lot of your treatments. The second then is to listen to the patient and say, what are their goals of care in terms of longevity, function, and quality of life, and what time frame do they care about. And you try to match those things. So that way, what a person cares about is what we actually achieve. And I think that, let's say, a functional goal or a goal of care uh, is a great way to unify. It's a unifying goal for multiple medical problems. Uh, I told a group of residents, it's a lot like putting your TV in a living room. It lets you know what you should point all your furniture at. And um, having a good goal of care does the same thing to your diseases. It aligns the treatment to aim at one thing. I think the other is uh, what my former boss said, which is the goal of geriatrics is to simplify complexity. And simplicity needs to be A specific goal in our care of patients so that way we don't burden them and the cart comes before the horse and their social lives are seeing doctors um so i think simplicity in addition to aligning to a goal of care um is something we ought to do
1: yeah all right this is fantastic josh thank you so much super fun uh you guys are amazing uh, we we think the same of you. Thank you.
2: Yeah, we'll need you back for an inpatient episode. That was, this was really helpful. Thank you.
4: Sure, yeah. no problem. You
1: you do you still work in the ACE unit as well, Josh? Yep.
4: So I work in the ACE unit, the nursing home, and the office. Um, and I love introducing myself as a nursing home doc. Yeah. Uh, most people haven't met a nursing home doc. It's kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. Hey, can I plug two things? Yeah, please. All right. So one is Betty White has a TV show called Off Your
0: Rocker.
1: <laughs> I've heard of that. Yeah.
0: Is it the same Betty White from? uh?
4: Yes. Golden Girls.
0: Oh, my gosh. Okay.
4: And what it is is a uh, candid camera show where old people prank young people. <laughs> and the way they pull off the no prank way. is that the young people have assumptions and stereotypes of the old people. And the actors and actresses use those against the, against the young people. And it is hilarious.
1: <laughs> All right.
4: Uh, a second – it is funny. On a second note, I would say a uh, second plug would be a book called Finishing Well to the Glory of God, uh, which is a book written by a geriatrician at Yale named John Dunlop. And he blends spiritual issues – with aging issues really well in a way that doesn't over-medicalize aging. And whether a person is spiritual in background or not, um, trying to help people achieve their goals in a way that just doesn't doesn't medicalize everything um, is really important. And this is a book that uh, achieves that really well. It's It's a nice read.
1: We will link to all that in the show notes.
4: <laughs> Sounds good.
1: All right. Okay. We good? Yeah. Thank your wife and kids for letting letting you record with us tonight. The audience thanks them as well.
4: All right. Sounds good. I'll see you guys. All right. Night. Bye, John. Thanks, right. Bye. Bye-bye.
2: This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox
3: that's
0: right and apparently leah's going never mind
3: <laughs> sorry I stole your thunder we're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge and to do that we need your feedback so please subscribe rate and review the show on itunes or contact us at the curbsiders at gmail.com a special thanks to nora toronto and our and to our social media team hannah r abrams on twitter beth garbs garbatelli on instagram and chris the chew man chew on facebook until next time, I've been Dr. Leah Witt. I've been Matthew Frank Watto,
0: And I've been Stuart Kent Brigham. And I'm, apparently I'm out of a job.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: and weren't we going to thank Stuart for his musical contributions? Wasn't that going to be part yeah, of that? Yeah,
1: I need to add that in. Uh, Stuart, <laughs> Stuart produces the music for this show, which uh, my children love. And I think uh, I-, I love the music. My children love it. And I'm pretty sure the audience does, too. So thank you, you Stuart. You love the
2: world round. Yes, that's crazy.
1: Thank you for reminding me, Paul.
2: Happy to. That will be the last time I give Stuart credit for anything. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Thank you and good
0: night. Thanks, Paul. I'm a doctor. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> I wish to God we could leave that in. Uh...